Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. According to the National Constitution Center, this is the week we celebrate Abraham Lincoln's 210th birthday. But you wouldn't know it by watching the number of states that observe the day as a paid holiday. Currently, the Lincoln holiday is celebrated unofficially nationwide as part of what many states call President's Day, which falls on Monday, February 19th this year. Just a few states celebrate the actual Lincoln birthday on its date, and technically the federal President's Day commemorates George Washington's observed birthday. There is no national holiday called President's Day. So on February 12th, Lincoln's real birthday, there are few celebrations on a state level, along with a ceremony at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. There is also a wreath ceremony at Lincoln's birthplace in Kentucky. Lincoln really was born in a one-room log cabin on Sinking Spring Farm near present-day Hodgensville, Kentucky. There were efforts right after Lincoln's death to get his birthday recognized as a holiday, but there has never been a federal Lincoln birthday holiday. At Kentucky Humanities, we celebrate Lincoln and many other historical figures in the state every day through our Chautauqua program. Greg Waltermeyer portrays Abraham Lincoln for Kentucky Humanities. And another thing life has taught me is that you need to believe in yourself, at least enough to try. Now, you didn't misunderstand me, did you? I didn't say everything you try is going to work and that everything you want is going to happen. But I have noticed so often that the difference between the one who succeeds and the one who does not is not always traced back to intelligence or talent. Very often, it is just one believing in themselves at least enough to try to do something where they can't control the outcome. Now, if you've been listening to me, you already know why self-confidence did not come easy for Abraham Lincoln. I've already told you that Abraham Lincoln was never from the right kind of family. Lincoln was never the smartest. Lincoln was never the wealthiest. But how many of you would believe this? And it's okay if you nod your head at me because I've seen the pictures myself. How many of you know there never was a time Lincoln was the prettiest? (laughs) It seems that my entire life, whether it was my gangly height or my homely features, there were always people who wanted to opine on my appearance. One time I was riding down a narrow trail on a horse when a horse came in the other direction with a young lady sitting on it and when we came to where our horses were about to meet I pulled my horse over to the side to permit her safe passage and when she came by her horse to mine she just stopped and stared and when she finally spoke she said you are the ugliest man I've ever seen in my life and I said yes ma'am that's that's probably true but there's nothing I can do about it to which she said, you might try staying home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Mr. Lincoln, I was laughing. I, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, the real Abraham Lincoln uh, from our Chautauqua performance uh, series is Greg Waltermeyer of Lexington, Kentucky. And thanks so much for being with us today, Greg. Privileged to be here. In the voice of Abraham Lincoln um, and a, a lot of ways that the conversation can go. But But first of all, I think uh, sometimes people are curious about uh, who are our 
performers and what are their backgrounds. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you have a, um, a form, if you will, uh, on most Sunday mornings, do you not? That I do. For the last 18 years, I have been the minister at the Heritage Baptist Church here in Lexington. And so the idea of public speaking is not new to me, but I certainly feel the weight of it. And feeling the weight of it, you weren't trained, uh, at least I don't think in the very beginning, uh, unless you did it as an amateur, as a performer. Um, you went to the University of Kentucky. Uh, you have a PhD in, what is that again, educational? Educational policy studies and evaluation. So I'm not sure that they did any theater in that <laughs> program that you took. How did you get interested in, uh, in performing? Quite frankly, I was the kind of father who, instead of insisting that my daughters like what I like, that I wanted to put my life into their circles. And none of them liked sports. They didn't like camping. They didn't like doing anything like that. But they enjoyed the arts. And so I wanted to spend time with them, and I'd take them to auditions. And then they said, why don't you audition with us? And it became just family fun. After a while, we all started getting cast in things, and many, many times, worked on plays together and so that has grown into this and in fact i was in a a show with one of my daughters where jim rogers who was a, a person who is familiar and associated with the chautauqua program he was the director and he contacted me after that about filling a vacancy for the humanities council and he did it in such a a classic way. He calls me on the phone and he told me that there was a vacancy that was coming and that the Humanities Council needed to move quickly because they didn't want to start the next school year without a Lincoln. And so he said, and Greg, I thought about you. And he said, because, and I got ready for the biggest compliment. I thought he was going to say, after having directed you, nobody delivers a line like you do, or you make contact with people in the audience and they're just drawn toward you. He said, Greg, I thought about you because you've got the height. <laughs> and At I least just, he didn't say anything about your looks. <laughs> <laughs> no, he helped me there. And so I was waiting for something to come after that, but there was nothing else coming. But they uh, put me on the fast track, and I, I got to learn it as quickly as I could. And, and we started just a few months later doing it. Did you already know a lot about Abraham Lincoln? I would say at best— I am a very amateur historian. I love history, and certainly Lincoln has some uh, monumental watershed moments, and I knew about those. But there are several things in the performance that I did not know about, and I think most people don't know. And it makes Lincoln—it's um, not that we appreciate him more, but I think we understand him more. What are some of those uh, moments that uh, people might not be familiar with? I think everybody knows about his poverty and his background, but to know the circumstances surrounding when his mother died, and that left him with living with his father, who most people would say was an extremely moral man, and he was a very faith-filled man, but he was a difficult man to live with. Uh, it was just growing up in the times in which he did, uh, Lincoln did not did not like his father, and that extended through the remainder of his life, not letting him see his children. Not, not going to his funeral. Uh, just a, a lot of antipathy that was there, uh, even feeling that after Lincoln's father remarried and the woman who took his mother's place, he loved her as a mother, but loved her more than he loved his own dad hmm. because he showed such favoritism toward his stepchildren, 
over his birth children, things like that. Things of, of hearing some of the things that happened to Lincoln as a person trying to put yourself in a position of, in a span of five weeks, going from being Mr. Lincoln lawyer in Illinois, five weeks later, you are not only the president of the United States, you are the commander in chief of a wartime army that is firing bullets at its own citizens. No one in our nation's history in, in five weeks. Didn't even have enough time to unpack. And yet he, he's gone to that. Just a, a, a lot of issues that were going on that way. The humane part of his issue, a complicated relationship with his wife, further complicated by having four children and two of them dying in such early age, including one in the middle of the Civil War that did not allow Lincoln to call time out and grieve as a father. Just those type of things that they, they fill in the gaps of humanity. What kind of a father was he? Lincoln described himself as being an indulgent <laughs> father. I'm, I think we're probably having some conjecture to say that maybe he treated his children the way that he wished he was treated. He allowed them to have a lot of free run. In fact, uh, one of Lincoln's law partners, Billy Herndon, uh, just hated when Lincoln brought his kids to the office because they just ran roughshod. They grabbed papers, they emptied drawers and things. And, and these were law professionals, but it was one of those that he allowed them to do so. Uh, he was much more of a, of a lenient father. Love was abundantly there, but also one that not, not distant, not distracted per se, but during some of his children's um, formative years, uh, he had other things on his mind, mm -hmm. and, and, and because of that, what time he did have was very special to him. We have uh, talked with um, a historian or two about Mary Todd Lincoln, and um, I think it's revealing uh, of that story and, and what kind of relationship uh, they had. Tell us more uh, about their marriage. One thing that gravitated Lincoln toward Mary Todd was her high level of education. At the time, it was not common for people, and she was born into uh, Kentucky aristocracy, and so she was fluent in French. She had uh, uh, genteel ways, and she was arrested by the fact that here was Lincoln who gave every external appearance of being someone who was rough, but she saw in him a tenacity toward that which was true, and she was able to have her political ambition expressed through him. That type of character is one that, that there was some conflict that they would have. Uh, her not being content to allow a, a simple person born in Kentucky, reared in Illinois, as it were, to come to the White House and remain that way. Lincoln, he met people at the White House in his stocking feet, mm -hmm. and that drove her crazy. Mm -hmm. He would say things like, come on in and let's talk a spell. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you are not just lawyer Lincoln. You're the president of the United States. You can't talk like that. I'm sure she was good for him in ways, and I'm sure that she was... Uh, kind of a sandpaper to make some rougher edges a little smoother. Uh, there was affection, but I'm sure there were some moments that uh, what she wanted to be wasn't what it was yet. What do we know about um, some of the uh, details that aren't uh, 
so well known uh, about his time uh, in the White House and during the war. And we hear stories in Reed history that there were times when he was uh, withdrawn, um, in fact, depressed. Um, what, what in your research uh, have you learned about those years? Most research I've seen would describe Lincoln as being someone whose overall personality was called melancholy. That even at his at his best in normalcy, he was someone who uh, lived under a rain cloud. And uh, Lincoln was somebody who had to fight against that because he had to project an image of optimism and, and of hope. Uh, that was put to the test when his son died uh, while in the middle of the Civil War and just a, a very difficult time. Lincoln, he was a person who tried to surround himself with public speaking opportunities mm -hmm. because uh, the books will tell us that when he got in front of a crowd, there, a sparkle came to his eye. It was like he was in his element and he was able to, to speak. It may have only been a temporary respite from the reality of what life was, but, but he enjoyed that. And being withdrawn in his cabinet you know, his cabinet, the people who are supposed to be his group of advisors, were the ones that presented him with the largest opposition to the Emancipation Proclamation. It was people within his own cabinet that were telling him, uh, you're losing your own credibility by changing generals, hmm. uh, e even allowing uh, McClellan to serve as his chief general on two separate occasions. And it was so successful that in 1864, it was McClellan who ran against him for the reelection with basically the, the campaign platform of, I know this man behind closed doors and you don't want him to as a president. And he had him be his general twice. And his cabinet just could not believe that. And uh, also there were people in his cabinet that they wearied of his, of his mannerisms, of his colloquialisms that when he would have a story for every occasion, and it's kind of like, you're not campaigning all the time. Uh, we are not your, your populace. We're not the people you're trying to persuade. We are your cabinet. Get to the point. But he just had a mannerism about him. And those things very often left Lincoln feeling in seclusion, feeling isolated. And then you can imagine if you go home and explain this to your wife, and, and she probably agrees with them quite a bit, um, it was a time of, of depression, many occasions. There's been so much written about um, his confliction about slavery. Uh, some of the uh, early reports, and I think it's still debated about uh, whether he, uh, what, what uh, his real true belief was, what it was early on, how he changed. Uh, in your presentation of Abraham Lincoln, what, what do you share with the audience about that period? Well, Lincoln did say that slavery was a moral, a social, and a political evil. And he thought that slavery, if it were contained in the states where it currently resided, that it would die out on its own. And one of the things that propelled him toward national politics was when the Kansas-Nebraska Act was put in place, which was going to allow states under the notion of popular sovereignty that they might be able to choose for thing, and it completely undid the Missouri Compromise. Uh, he realized that this is something that is not going to be kept in its place if there is an economic advantage to be gained by it. And if this economic advantage can be extended all the way to the Pacific Ocean 
at some time. And because of that, uh, he became much more of the abolitionist that we know him toward the end. But even having said that, Lincoln did also say that in, in a sense of clarity and focus that the during the Civil War, he said, I would preserve the Union and free all of the slaves, or I'd preserve the Union and free none of them. Mm. Uh, he, he was a person who had a, a laser focus. It was not always on slavery, mm. though as an individual. He also said that whenever he hears someone who is arguing for slavery, he feels the intense impulse to see it tried on him. Because mm. uh, I'm sure nobody would argue for it if mm. they were the slave. Yeah. Um, what in your presentation for Kentucky Humanities uh, as Abraham Lincoln um, the the stories that you tell are there also um, do you also recite um, the the passages that we're more familiar that we are as public uh, more familiar with? I have two presentations for the Kentucky Humanities Council. One of them is much more detailed about things such as that, quoting things that that he had said and and done so in a in a more serious and, and sober mind. Uh, I have other ones that are done that are a little bit more on the on the personalized side and even end it with a, a quotation from the Gettysburg Address, but having people from the audience that come up and do so. Hmm. Uh, they repeat after me, but they do so wearing a, a Lincoln hat, a Lincoln beard, and the Lincoln jacket mm-hmm. just as a manner of, of connecting with the audience mm-hmm. so it largely depends on what the people ask for and uh, and i have found over my period that people really do like the the, the humorous part of it um, the, the little bit less content as far as being heavy don't go greatly into statistics of the civil war and battle by battle commentary much more of the the overall picture what do you other than the Gettysburg Address, what, what are the, the, the passages that you are either familiar with or that uh, you share with the audience um, that, that you could do for us today? Well, uh, they're, they're very brief, other than the Gettysburg one. For example, uh, when Abraham Lincoln is having his inaugural address of his second term, that is when he said the war wasn't even over, and he said, uh, with malice toward none, but charity for all. Let us be about the business of binding the nation's wounds. And I try to stress to the the hearers of the presentation that we're going to be one of two types of people. We might be the type of person who makes somebody bleed, or we can be the type of person who sees somebody bleeding and we help make it stop. Let's choose to be the latter. So from his second inaugural, uh, uh, on a, depending on how the presentation is concluded, uh, Lincoln gives his his farewell to I- Illinois when he's coming to, and and talks about how that he bids them a, an affectionate farewell that everything he is at the moment is owed to Illinois and uh, it, it just um, it was classic Lincoln because according to the stories it was made up on the spot hmm. that uh, he, he didn't think anybody was going to come to the to the railroad station that early in the morning on a rain-filled day to see him off. He was just Abe Lincoln, but yet he turns around and there's a huge number of people and he felt compelled to speak to him. And his oratory was so good on the spur of the moment that sometimes uh, we've included that one. Can you recite some of that? 
that is, I would hesitate to do it now, okay. not, not because of anything against it. That's the one that I don't do as frequently, okay. and That's I would fine. be so hesitant to, sure. to get it wrong. But I admire it because mm-hmm. being a, a public speaker myself, you could imagine if all of a sudden somebody turns around and puts a microphone in your mm-hmm. face, you yeah. say, uh, I wouldn't be quite as flowery as Lincoln was. What is your favorite uh, portion, if you will, uh, even in small snippets of the Gettysburg Address? I have found it so amazing. It's a part that most people don't uh, focus on where he says that the hallowed ground that they are on, we cannot hallow this ground. We cannot uh, make it consecrated. The ones who have done that, the ones who died here have already done that. And he said, but it is for us rather to be dedicated. That he was speaking to the people and saying, what has brought us here has been the ultimate sacrifice of the people who died here. You don't need to do what they have done. In fact, you need to dedicate yourself, not a piece of ground, so that you will carry on what they have begun. And I I thought that was very powerful because if someone was just there because it was a chance to hear the president speak, or if it was a uh, it was a dedication service of a national cemetery, and to have something like it, he said, "No, this is a chance for you to do something about this." And it starts not with. Uh, lauding the, the world with little note nor long remember what we do here. It is what they did. Now you take what they did and finish it. And I, I thought that was very, mm-hmm. very powerful. And it is interesting to see, not always with school children, but with adults, when you tell them that at the conclusion of the Gettysburg Address, nearly every newspaper universally condemned it, hmm. one calling it dishwater utterances. Hmm. Another, another one saying that uh, Americans have to be embarrassed to point out to foreign visitors that that man is our president. And, and yet the test of time has proven them to be extremely wrong. Do you think in this day and age there's still a lot to learn from Abraham Lincoln? I think absolutely. Lincoln was not perfect. Uh, there are some things about Lincoln that are less than satisfying to the 21st century mind and sensibilities, but here was a man who I think one of his most marvelous accomplishments, in addition to a very keen mind, if someone underestimated him because they thought of him as being a a bumpkin, that they did that to their own peril, but Abraham Lincoln was a man of tenacity. When he thought he was right, not in an arrogant way and not necessarily stubborn, but convicted, a passionate person. And he was willing to, to stand even when he stood alone. And that, uh, I think uh, his, according to him, if he's ever going to be remembered for anything in life, it's going to be for the Emancipation Proclamation. And the issuing of that against the wishes of his own cabinet, because that he thought that that was the best way to preserve the Union, to give nobility to what the Union soldiers were fighting for. They didn't start that way. But, it, but doing so, and then to have essentially Lincoln's bluff to be called. For he said in the Emancipation, it takes place on January the 1st of the coming year, that if the states currently in rebellion do not release their slaves, I'll do it federally by myself. Well, the, January 1st came, not a single slave was done. The southern state said, we don't have to do it. You said, we don't recognize you. And it was kind of like, well, that thing's not worth the paper it's written on yeah. unless the Union forces can enforce it and back it up. And it was just a, an impassioned thing. 
there was a at, at Fredericksburg, uh, Lincoln had grown. Excuse me, prior to Fredericksburg, he had grown so disillusioned with the lack of progress that the that the uh, forces were making, and that even as the southern uh, southern forces had come to the north, they had crossed over into Maryland, where they had the battle at Antietam, mm-hmm. which and here it is on northern territory, mm-hmm. and they have to push them back. And he tells the Union generals, "Stop waiting on them. Uh, you have to take the battle to them." I know by saying this that we're talking about infliction of. of wounds and, and, and of death, but we have to do this and end this thing. And when uh, General Burnside did that at Fredericksburg and it ended up being one of the most lopsided defeats that the Union ever had, I try to picture in my mind Lincoln, who was at the, uh, the uh, executive mansion, having the governor of Pennsylvania come to him and say, I just visited the battle site. And he said, Mr. President, that wasn't a battle. That was a butchery. Hmm. And it was, and Lincoln basically said, if there's a place worse than hell, I'm in it. Mm, De- yeah. The death of his son, he couldn't even grieve. He, all of a sudden, he, the commander-in-chief, but not the military soldier, he gives the orders of how to do it. And when it does, it was such a colossal failure. And it's just, and his own person just lays it at his feet. Mm-hmm. And he can't dodge it. And yet persists. A, a tenacity. Uh, many of us would have changed horses in the middle of that stream or we'd have changed something or quit. Yes, sir. You have uh, shared uh, with me that uh, a large percentage of your audiences are school children uh, who thank uh, goodness are still learning about Lincoln. What kind of reception do you do you get from them? Have they uh, we always try to put out a a teacher's uh, guide uh, on uh, on our performers uh, the teachers can either adopt that or uh, teach that or, or not before you come into the classroom. Uh, are children, are they prepared for uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, portrayed by you, uh, Greg Waltermeyer? Uh, are, are we teaching history in the right way to, to, to help them uh, go along uh, and learn about what a great man Abraham Lincoln was? I think the latter question, are we doing it in the right way, as far as the Chautauqua program, absolutely. I, I never have the same experience because some teachers take the, the curriculum enhancements and they do it before I get there. And then mine is more of a retelling and reinforcement. Other times, I'm the one who kicks it off, mm-hmm. trying to spur conversation mm-hmm. and to pique their attention because I have had teachers that come in and they said, how many of you remember when Lincoln said such and such? Mm-hmm. And he said, starting tomorrow, we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the program has a, uh, an immeasurable value on that. And I've had so many of them uh, because I, I think it would be fair to say on a national scale, the state of Kentucky is considered one of the, one of the poorer states economically. Not every place in Kentucky is the same, but as a state. And that there are so many teachers who, even in their upper elementaries, have noted to me that students have today almost a a sense of hopelessness, Hmm. that that life is never going to be anything good, that this is the way. And when you come and you have a motivational lecture, that they appreciate that because Many of the things that teachers say, the same thing I do, but when it comes from a, a different voice and, and a different setting, such as with a Chautauqua presentation, I've had more 
comments on the idea of of helping them that way. Uh, so I know we're doing it. To, we're doing a good thing for them. Greg Waltemeyer, uh, a.k.a. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln in our Kentucky Humanities Chautauqua series, or maybe it's uh, Greg Waltemeyer, uh, a.k.a. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you, you'll take either one, I would imagine. Absolutely. Proud thank, to be associated with him. Thank you, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing all across the state of Kentucky, especially uh, with these uh, little children who uh, certainly uh, look up to you, whether it's looking up to... Uh, to Reverend uh, Walter Meyer or whether it's President Lincoln. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.